This morning we return to the book of Revelation. We left off at the end of chapter 9, which was the end of the sixth trumpet. In our text today from Revelation chapter 10, we see that these trumpets, just like the seals, have an interlude, a pause between the sixth and the seventh one. You might recall that after the sixth seal, there was an interlude, really a sort of a twofold interlude, an interlude with two scenes in chapter 7. And these interludes depict the role of the church during the, the seal judgments. We get the same thing here at the end of the sixth trumpet. Chapters 10 and 11 of Revelation are a twofold interlude. And they're describing the role first of John and then of you and I, of the whole church, in the period of the judgments, the trumpet judgments, a period which we've contended is the whole history of the church. And so we'll look at this text under three headings. They're there in the bulletin, the mighty angel, the oath, and the scroll. So first, the mighty angel. Chapter 10, verse 1, John sees another mighty angel. This goes back to chapter 5 where it was a mighty angel with a loud voice who asked the question, who is able, who is worthy to open the scroll? And this angel here is described in such a way that many people think this angel is, is Christ himself. He comes down from heaven. He's wrapped in a cloud, which is a sign of Yahweh's presence. He has a rainbow over his head. The same rainbow which in chapter 4 was around the throne. So that associates this angel with the one on the throne. Remember the one on the throne in chapter 4 in his sovereign transcendent majesty. Reigned in peace and splendor. And there was a rainbow there. Jesus, as he appears earlier then in the book, has a, in chapter 1, has a face which is like the sun, and his legs were pillars of fire, just like this angel here. This angel here in verse 3 cries out with a loud voice like a, like a lion roaring. And in chapter 1, when John sees Christ, the lion of the tribe of Judah, he has a voice which the text says is like the roar of many waters. Now, having said all that, I don't think this angel is Christ. It's highly unlikely that John would call Christ an angel, much less another mighty angel, one in a series of angels. Uh, But there's no doubt here that this angel, this being, reflects Christ's glory, comes with Christ's authority. So what we want to say is this is not Christ, but this is Christ's own personal angel. And this is very important, it turns out, Because Christ's own angel has not yet appeared in the book. And yet, now here you'll have to exercise your memory or flip back in your Bible. But the very first verse of the book, chapter 1, verse 1, it gives us the chain of transmission. In other words, how 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 the book of Revelation came to us. And there we were told God gave this revelation to Jesus Christ. And Jesus made it known by sending his angel to John. 
And that angel appears here for the first time. And this angel has a little open scroll in his hand. We'll come back to the scroll. But note now that the angel sets his foot on the sea. Right foot on the sea. Left foot on the land. And the angel's asserting Christ's sovereignty. His rule. Over the realms, by the way, where the judgments of the seals and the trumpets have been poured out. Land and sea. And in uh, chapter 13 in the book, we'll see the main antagonists of the king arise. There's a beast that arises from the sea. There's a second beast which arises from the land. And thus we see before the beasts emerge, Christ strides the sea and the land, which means he is sovereign over the beasts. That the beast will be made an enemy, subdued, placed under his feet. And so this angel, having cried out with a loud voice, like a lion roaring, in response to these mighty angels' cry, seven thunders are then sounded in the text. And here I'm going to be brief. Nobody knows what the seven thunders are because they're called back. John's about to write, and they're called back. So they just remain a mystery. They're an enigma. They remind us that... Even as this book is a revelation and unveiling, there are yet many secrets unrevealed to us about God and his unfathomable judgments in the earth. So, that's the angel. The second point here is the oath. The angel stands on sea and land and raises his right hand to heaven. And this, of course, is the posture of oath-taking. And this is a moment... A very high drama in the book. The angel swears, that means he takes an oath, by him who lives forever and ever. He's mimicking the angel at the end of the book of Daniel. And Daniel's just crucial to Revelation. It's virtually impossible to understand the book of Revelation without Daniel's book. And in Daniel's prophecy, there's an angel at the end. And Daniel's words are sealed up. And this angel stands above the waters. And this angel and Daniel raises his right hand to heaven and then swears by him who lives forever and ever. And so John is being told what was future to Daniel. What was sealed up to Daniel is about to be unveiled to you. The end times, the last things of which Daniel prophesied are coming to pass upon your life. And so he swears an oath by the one who lives forever and ever, the eternal God. And we've seen this before. The eternity of God in Revelation, it always has a little bite to it. It means the one who stands against all of these fleeting, temporary, vaporizing claims of the empire. The great thing about tyrannical empires, the only great thing about them, is they don't last forever. And so it turns out that the eternity of God, I bet we don't often think of this, the eternality of God is a politically potent doctrine. There's one everlasting, indestructible kingdom, and then there's a series of vaporizing kingdoms. 
And so notice, as he swears here, the angel swears by this one, the one, the only one who lives forever and ever, he then describes him as the sovereign creator over the three realms that the angel now spans. The, the angel's on land and on sea, and his hand is in the heavens. The earth and the sky and the sea. And he describes the one who lives forever as the one who created heaven and all that's in it, and the earth and what is in it, and the sea and what is in it. And so the point is driven home. This angel is a witness to, an enforcer of the sovereignty of God's Christ over earth and sky and sea. And what he swears is, there'll be no more delay. No more partial judgments. No more a quarter of this and a third of that. Rather, he says in verse 7, In the days when the seventh angel is about to sound his trumpet, the mystery of God would be fulfilled just as he announced to his servants, the prophets. That's a mouthful. But the simple point is is that when the seventh trumpet sounds, now remember, we're between the sixth and the seventh trumpet. When the seventh trumpet sounds, the end has arrived. He calls that here the mystery of God. This idea of the mystery of God is prominent in the New Testament. Paul speaks of it, the mystery of God, hidden. Hidden, concealed for ages and generations. Hidden from Daniel. Hidden from the prophets. Now revealed in Christ. It's a mystery. An open secret now. Which the New Testament speaks of as God reconciling Jew and Gentile together in one body. It's a mystery, the goal of which, Paul tells us, is summing up all things in Christ. It's a cosmic mystery. It's about reintegrating the cosmos and the futility of creation and restoring all things. That mystery will not only be unveiled, but it will be fulfilled and accomplished. John says, is told this when the seventh trumpet sounds. So John is now being given an insight into the very purposes of God in the earth that was unveiled to this time. And that brings us to the third point. And this is the main thing that I think I want to focus on from this text, and that's the scroll. In in verse 8, John hears the voice again saying, Go take the scroll that lies open in the hand of the angel who's standing on the sea and the land. This scroll and its relationship to the scroll that Jesus opens in chapter 5 has generated a lot of of debate. Uh, They're both pointed to by mighty angels. They both have to do with the the dominion and the possession of, of Jesus Christ over heaven and earth. Notice also that this scroll, unlike the sealed scroll in chapter 5, remember Jesus the Lamb took the sealed scroll, he broke the seven seals. This scroll is open in the hand of Christ's angel. And so what we have here is the same scroll that the Lamb took in chapter 5. There it was sealed with seven seals. Now the Lamb has broken all seven of the seals. And inside the seventh seal, we saw that there were seven trumpets. They were sort of inside the seventh seal. And now before the end of the seventh trumpet is sounded, the scroll is finally open. The book is open. You can actually read what's inside. 
So the judgments of the seven seals are not the content of the scroll. Right? If you have a scroll and it's sealed, you take the seals off. The seals are written, so they have content, but they're not the content of the book. The scroll is now finally open. And you can now read it. That's why it's important that the angel here is the angel of Christ. Christ communicated his revelation to John by sending his angel. And that is what's happening here. And that makes this actually a momentous scene. Everything that happened before this is preliminary. This is, and this is widely recognized now, this is the literary heart of the book of Revelation. You might not think that if you just read chapter 10 in your English Bible. But that scroll, which the slain lamb took in chapter 5, is now completely open. Able to be read, sitting in the hands of an angel, and it's going to be handed to John. So John tells Christ's angel to give him the scroll. And the angel says, take and eat it. It'll make your stomach bitter or sour. But in your mouth, it'll be sweet as honey. This recalls the commissioning of Ezekiel. Ezekiel was a prophet. And there's a similar scene in Jeremiah, actually. These prophets were told to eat scrolls, especially Ezekiel. These scrolls were written, like this one on the front and the back. And Ezekiel's told that his scroll contains words of lamentation and mourning and woe. It's wonderful to be a prophet. Here's your commission. Lamentation, mourning, and woe. So this means John's being recommissioned to sort of get into his bones, to digest, to assimilate, and to communicate the content of this scroll. And so, like Ezekiel's scroll, it's sweet in his mouth. But it makes him sick. It makes his stomach bitter. It's sweet because it is the holy and good word of God. It's sweet because it concerns the sweep of God's presence, His purposes, sovereign in earth and sky and sea. There's a great sweetness in it. But it's bitter because it's going to speak of unspeakable suffering for the saints, of dreadful judgments upon unrepentant nations. You know, we love the sweet parts of Scripture. We don't like the bitter parts very much at all. I used to tell friends of mine, you ever notice there are no pocket Old Testaments? Everybody's got a pocket Psalm, a little promise Bible. There are no little books, all the curses of the Bible. There's a promise book, there's a New Testament book, there's pocket little psalms, right? These things should have on on the front of them, we like all the sweet parts. We don't want the bitter parts. John has no such luxury. Nor does any prophet. John's book, like our holy book, has sweet parts and bitter parts. It's even... More integrated than that. The same parts that are sweet are also bitter. And the parts that are bitter are also sweet. So, finally, John's told to eat this book. He says, you must again prophesy. I mean, John's been prophesying to us. 
You have to prophesy again. But now, John, you're going to prophesy after you've internalized and eaten this scroll. And you have to prophesy to nations and kings and languages and peoples. In other words, your your prophecy is going to be international. It's going to be cosmic. So let me just note a couple things here as I begin to close. Uh, First, the end is not yet. We're in an interlude, and the interlude is the period of the whole church. And so what we're learning here, so you might say, well, what does the interlude say about the church? What are we to be doing? Well, first it's addressing John, and then next week it'll address you and me a little more directly. But the the big picture here is the whole church is called to bear prophetic witness, to prophesy to the nations. And so there's something that's kind of cracked open in the book of Revelation here for the first time. How is it that the sovereign mystery of God will be fulfilled? Here we learn it's going to be the martyrdom, the martyr-like, lamb-like suffering, speaking, prophesying, witness of the church. First John and then the church. That is the instrument by which God's purposes of salvation Come to pass. Or in other words, John, as well as you and I, we participate in the dominion of the Lamb by imitating the Lamb's witness. And so the very persecution of the church, the, pro- the proclaiming church, is the secret weapon which enables the mystery to be fulfilled. So in other words, Christ through his angel, saying to John now, look, I've shown you these sweeping visions. You and the body of Christ are at the heart of how these visions come to pass in the earth. Christ works in and with and through his whole body. Notice verse 11. This description, this fourfold description is actually changed. Normally it's peoples, nations, languages, and tribes or tongues And here, kings are substituted. And this anticipates the fact that John is going to be prophesying to kings. The book is going to be about Christ's kingship versus rival kings. And the rival kings in the book of Revelation are depicted almost, almost, always aligned with the beast against the lamb. And so the book is is giving something to John, but also to us here. It's giving us ample warning about the rulers of this age, who Paul says crucified the Lord of glory and are coming to nothing. Among the many purposes of Revelation is it should induce in us both a rich and a full-orbed hope, but also a real sober, historical, political realism. If we don't get both those things, we're not reading the book right. Part of the purpose of the book is to strip us of all false and illusory hope so that true hope might flourish. John has no illusions about the kings of the earth. And so history then, John is saying, this is not happening over your head, this book. It's not just happening to you. You're called through John's witness onto the stage of history. You are called. Yes, we're called without illusions. And our task is is not exactly the same as John's, but it's like John's. And what is that then? 
Well, it's pretty simple here. Our task is to eat the book. Not just the sweet stuff that we like, but the whole bittersweet panorama which we have in Holy Scripture. So what does it mean, then, for us to eat the book? You cannot prophesy to the nations if you don't eat this book. It means to dwell in the book. Jesus says, if you abide in me, you're my disciples. There's a kind of abiding. Inhabit the book. And that means we allow the book to illumine us, to shape us, to form us. We are in many ways the people of the book. There's one dominating, towering word, which is to shape, form, and mold us. And so when you inhabit the book, when you dwell in the book, eventually you see the structure of the book. You connect the story and the storyline and the narrative. This eating the book is more than just memorizing some Bible verses. It's about understanding the book in its depth and understanding its arc, its texture. Eat the book. When you eat food, it becomes assimilated into you. And then... John says, we can go bear prophetic witness. How can one bear prophetic witness without reading and assimilating the prophets? So what is being said here is Christ, the, the faithful witness, he has testified. Christ's angel, he has appeared here and borne solemn witness. John has, and John's about to bear witness to the nations. But the witnessing is not complete without you. Without your tears and your struggles and your suffering. Without your reading. Without your eating. And so this is one of the challenges of the book of Revelation. It's a book which says, I want you to self-consciously think of your lives framed by this narrative. This is the only story in the Bible, the book of Revelation, which takes us from the first century from the New Testament to the end of the age. And it can seem, I'm acutely aware of this, it can seem far away. Maybe not as nitty-gritty as we'd like, but I would want to contend that the big sweeping stuff is really practical stuff. The big sweeping cosmic vision stuff is really important. You know, Paul in Colossians 3 says that we have died and our lives are hidden with Christ and God. And that when Christ appears, then you'll be revealed with him in glory. You know what he's saying? He's saying it's not your narrative or your life which is at the center of the stage. Your narrative doesn't matter in some ways, Paul says. He says Christ's narrative matters. The book's about Christ. The history of the cosmos is about Christ. If you want to play, you get baptized into that narrative. And that means your little individual narrative dies. You have died. Your life, your narrative, it's hidden. Where? With Christ, in God. And it will be revealed when Christ appears in glory. So the, so the, 
the heart of what has to happen here is an inversion where our own personal narrative is not at the center of the stage. Where we're not constantly saying, well, I got nothing out of that. I have students in this New Testament class I'm teaching that will occasionally say, I got nothing out of that text. And I say, I say, well, it got nothing out of you either. In other words, what I'm trying to tell them is, look, get yourself into the text. Don't worry about what you can get out of it. But you don't stand over the text and say, oh, I don't know, I don't know. I can't get, I can't get this. That does nothing for me. Well, here's what it's supposed to do for you, I tell them. Crucify you. So that you can be baptized into this narrative. If you can't, if, so this is part of what John is trying to say. He's trying to say, look, there's a narrative that's going on out here. If you're going to insist that this narrative has to serve your narrative, well then sure, you're going to turn Christianity to a, a piece of devotional literature that bolsters up your fleeting, vaporizing narrative. The big stuff is more practical than anyone can imagine because it goes right after our claim to be at the center of the narrative of the world. That's what John's doing. And John is saying, look, you can be swept up into this narrative. You have to eat the book so you can prophesy to the nations, so you can bear witness to the purposes of the mystery of God. This is your vocation written in advance. This is your story, and the role to play has already been scripted. There are no other parts to the story. There are no other available parts in the drama. We're swept up into this narrative. And that's the joy of it. This is the way of life. It's the way of the cross. And so again, as the book constantly does, it it charges us to, to resolve to be faithful witness to the end. And that means we have to eat and chew and inhabit the holy text. We have to inhabit the holy text. I love that prayer of illumination. We didn't pray it today, but it says, Give us grace to read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest the word. So let the one who has ears hear what the Spirit, through the angel of Christ, says to the churches. Amen.